You're listening to Grow Yourself Up, a weekly mental health podcast hosted by Kath Cunahan. I'm a psychotherapist, writer, and speaker working in private practice in London. I specialize in the impact of our own childhood on our parenting and how we can heal and integrate our childhood trauma, wounding, and stress so that we can inhabit our full adult selves. Join us each week as we talk about all things growing ourselves up, how we can tend to ourselves in our parenting, generational healing, and overcoming the impacts of childhood trauma. Together, we will become more self-compassionate, connected, authentic, resilient, and heart-centered, so we can live our own full and beautiful lives. As a listener of this podcast, you're welcome to come over and join the Facebook group. So search on Facebook for Grow Yourself Up. It's a private Facebook group of all the listeners. And did you know there are journal prompts that go along with every episode? So sign up for the journal prompts on kathcunahan.com or go to my Instagram, kathcunahan, and sign up at the link in the bio there. And you will get my newsletter, Nurture, Heal, Grow, which contains all the journal prompts. Looking forward to seeing you in the Facebook group. The podcast is produced each week by the wonderful Audio Cafe. Thanks for being here. Hello, welcome to episode 57 of Grow Yourself Up. I'm delighted to have you here. So this week, I am talking to Susie Redding. So Susie is a mother of two, an author, chartered psychologist and coach. She specializes in self-care, helping people manage their stress, emotions, and energetic bank balance. It was her life experience of motherhood colliding with the terminal illness of her father that sparked her passion for self-care, which she now teaches to her clients, young and old, to cope during periods of stress, loss, and change and to boost their resilience in the face of future challenges. Susie is the psychology expert for well-being brand Neom Organics, and she's a founding member of the Nourish app. She figure skated her way through her childhood growing up on the northern beaches of Sydney, and she now makes her home in the hills of Hertfordshire in the UK. She's got a number of books. So she's got The Self-Care Revolution, Stand Tall Like a Mountain, which is Mindfulness and Self-Care for Children and Parents, and The Little Book of Self-Care, which came out in 2019. Self-Care for Tough Times, and her first children's book, which is called This Book Will Help Make You Happy, were published in 2021. Her first journal, And Breathe, and um, a new deck of cards, which go alongside the book about self-care, which the cards are the little box of self-care, came out in 2022. And she's got a great book called Rest to Reset. So if you struggle with rest, there's lots of different practices in that book to help you. You can find Susie at um, Susie Redding um, on Instagram and um, Susie Redding Psychology and Yoga on Facebook. And on Twitter, she's at Susie Redding. And you can go and connect with her on Instagram and book um, one-to-one sessions with her. Okay, let's dive in. Hi, Susie. So, so delighted to have you here. You are like, to me, the self-care queen. Um, and I say that with so much admiration. And so I'm so, so grateful that you're here with us today. Um, and I wondered if we can just dive right in and have you tell us a bit about your past in motherhood and um, how you find your postpartum. Well, thank you for such a lovely, warm welcome. I always look forward to my time with you, Kath. Thank you. So, yeah, the path to motherhood, it certainly wasn't a smooth one. 
um, I had decided uh, with my husband, my English husband, that we would move back to Australia to start um, having a family because I thought, you know, beautiful environment in which to raise children, in which to raise a family, and I wanted to be close to my parents. And as life turns out, my father was very, very unwell, and that became really obvious when we first arrived. And he actually had a breathing failure when I was 40 weeks pregnant and ended up rushing him to, to the same hospital that I was due to give birth in. And so I became the mum just in a state of incredi- incredible depletion. So it, it was a week of saying last goodbyes to dad because um, we didn't know what had caused the breathing failure. So without a diagnosis, there was no treatment. And um, you can imagine the energetic bankruptcy that I experienced, you know, even before going into, you know, into labor. So it was a really tough time. And so much grief. Yeah. And the thing is, it's, it's very difficult to celebrate the birth of new life at the same time as mourning the loss of life. And, and my dad actually survived 15 months. So he was in intensive care for four months. And most of that, he was on a ventilator. He managed to actually throughout that period, breathe on his own again, but um, he was never able, he was never well enough to come home. So it's certainly a very long drawn out chapter of trying to make the best of it, trying to make memories with dad while he was in either in an intensive care unit or a rehab hospital or a high level um, nursing home. Wasn't really the kind of place that you wanted to take child, but I tell you what, she was such a little ray of, of light and she brought such joy everywhere we went. Um, but, but yeah, a baptism of fire, I think we can call that, um, becoming a parent at the same time as losing one. But some very deep lessons as a result. And I think so much of that informs my work today. You know, I wouldn't be sitting here working as a psychologist in this way, I think, if I hadn't had that lived experience. I think you're so right. Funnily enough, I just put up a post today I was talking about myself, but I think that all therapists and psychologists and um, body workers are wounded healers of some type um, and that our own pain bizarrely kind of informs our work because if we've experienced something to such a depth, it's easier to walk alongside someone like that. And it really feels like, wow, that thing of a parent dying and you giving birth to, I mean, I know that it was a slight time difference, but what a... How did you actually manage that time? Badly. <laughs> and do you know what? I just, hands up, like the fact is, I was just a normal, fallible human being, and life absolutely knocked me for six. So, guess what? I landed flat on my back and I stayed down for a really long time because it, it was an extended period of squeeze. It was hard. And I think what I've learned is the fact is, it doesn't matter. Whether you're a psychologist, counselor, it doesn't matter what toolkit you have. Life is still going to knock you for six sometimes because we're all human beings at the end of the day. Yes, I think sometimes our toolkit can maybe help us get up back on our feet faster, but no one is immune from overwhelm, burnout, energetic bankruptcy, anxiety, depression, grief. No one is immune. Um, so dispensation to feel regardless of what professional hat you wear so I say badly but anyone would have right and I can say that with tongue-in-cheek I can look back 
thankfully, with 13 years of healing now, I can look back with a sense of, of, of lightheartedness and go, oh my goodness, I was doing the best I could. But in those very early days, I always had a very healthy relationship with self-care. I had an extensive self-care toolkit at my disposal. But hand on heart, most of the things that I would do to nourish myself before becoming a mum literally became inaccessible to me as a new mum in those variables. I didn't have the energy to go for runs on the beach. I didn't really even have the energy to go for walks, but I had to because I couldn't get Charlotte to sleep in the in the in so it was movement that got her to sleep. So I was forever out there on what I used to call the the pram pilgrimage, just trying to get her to sleep. And that depletion literally addles your brains and it's so hard to think straight. So when she would have her her naps and occasionally she would sleep at home and I'd sit and watch a bit of Days of Our Lives and Bold and the Beautiful. And I tell you what, if you're not depressed before you watch that, you will be after it. <laughs> uh, and I gradually I realized, you know, I, I wanted to give every cell and fiber of my being to my little one. That's what she deserved. But I learned that if I didn't become more skilled and diligent in taking care of my own needs as a human being, that I, I couldn't be there for her. Yeah. And it literally became a matter of survival. Um, and I think there's, there, there are a lot of blessings in that. You know, for so many people, they feel guilty about taking care of themselves, but it was paired right back to a, a, a very deep visceral understanding that my depletion did not serve anyone and that my nourishment literally resourced everybody else as well. So I had to do things differently. And that became rolling out my yoga mat, having a goddamn sleep on it. But without the pressure to drop off, I'd set myself up in these beautiful restorative poses and I'd have the baby monitor right next to me. You know, if I dropped off, I was going to hear her. It was fine. If I didn't drop off, it didn't matter. But I was just lying there giving my mind and body exactly what it needed. Tenderness, stillness, comfort, release. And little by little, she began sleeping better. I was navigating that chapter, understanding that, okay, dad wasn't going to come home. This is just the lay of the land. We adjust. The grieving begins rather than just staying in that state of shock. Um, my mom felt that she was able to spend a little bit more time with us. Prior to that, my mom, because my dad couldn't speak for himself, my mom literally was by his side in hospital. The whole of visiting hours, like nine in the morning till seven at night, seven days a week. But little by little, she was able to say, do you know what, I, I also need to look after me and I also need to spend time with my granddaughter. And things began to change. And then maybe I had a little bit more energy to stand and do some standing yoga poses again. It just, it took, I'd say, I mean, like I said, dad, dad was around 15 months. It probably took the first two years of Charlotte's life for me to regain a sense of vitality, energy. So there we go. That was that was my wow introduction to motherhood. Wow, and that's so um like when you said it was a battle of fire. That really learning about if I my sacrifice or my kind of um, abandoning myself doesn't serve anyone. But you had so many other things pulling on you. You know, having a dad who was so unwell, having a tiny baby, and I think I think motherhood. No matter how much we prepare. It, it really blindsides you in many ways. Were you, did you, 
you were always in you were in Australia at that time, weren't you? Yeah. And tell us what did you sort of let go of? What was your fantasy of how you would be as a mother before you got into motherhood? So as as a nurturer, as a caregiver, um, professionally. So and I, I wore a number of different hats. So my professional background, I'm a chartered psychologist, but prior to to really reclaiming that that type of, of work. I worked as a personal trainer for a decade and then I moved into, into yoga. I, I did a lot of private yoga, um, a therapeutic application of yoga. Um, wasn't really until this life experience that I wanted to practice as a psychologist again. I forgot the question, Kath. What was the question? I wanted to know what did you, what were your kind of fantasies about how you would be as a mother? Absolutely. So the motherhood ideal. Um, was very much shaped by all of those different caregiving roles. And I was always the mother hen at school and the mother hen in my my sporting communities, right? So I just thought, oh, I'm made for this. I'm going to be really good at this. And my goodness, wowzers. The older my children get, the more I can sit in that, yeah, I am good at this. But I tell you what, as a human being, I'm a highly sensitive person. I, I struggle with noise. Uh, I find chaos unsettling. I don't enjoy uncertainty. Um, And as being uh, as someone who is used to striving, I I like it when if I put in a certain amount of effort, I can guarantee some kind of um, desired outcome. Oh, my God, right? You can give every cell and fiber of your being to your child. You can't make them sleep. You can't settle them. You can't make them feed. It's like we need a whole new notion of success when it comes to mothering. So, yeah, I learned that hard and fast. Compassion is key. And I guess throughout my motherhood journey, and this is something that I'm still learning now, is unpicking this ideal of the selfless mother. We have to call that out immediately. I mean, it's absolutely bullshit. It's toxic. Yeah. It's absolutely toxic. And it's it's not just women that are subject to this. It's not just mothers that are subject to this. If you look at the messaging around how okay society is with emotional expression, uh, people owning and meeting their needs, it's it's abundantly clear. Good babies are babies that sleep and that don't cry and that don't trouble their parents. Yes. Good children don't talk back to adults. Good girls are people-pleasing. Boys don't cry. Yeah, we've got schools who reward children for attendance. The basic message there is it's not okay to take time to heal and restore. And that overweening lauding of resilience is continued into adulthood. Um, We've got the selfless mother ideal. We've got men being told they've got to man up. They must provide and they can't show any vulnerability. You know, it is just a recipe for rage and resentment, but when society tells us we can't express that, well, then it gets turned inward. And then the the outlets are we either become burnt out or it winds up being turned inwards and becoming resulting in depression. Yeah. You know, it is- Or addictions or- Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So that is the one. And I think it's funny, you know, as my kids got older, I learned that as a, as a lioness mother- I had to learn to advocate for them and I found that really hard because I don't want to upset anyone. 
But if you don't, if you're not honest with other people, if you don't shape behavior, if you don't give feedback, how can we advocate for our kids? And in learning those skills on behalf of my children, I've now started to go, oh, hang on. Actually, I need to do this for myself. And actually, when I do this for myself, that's when I, I certainly avoid martyring myself. And the, and the thing is, when we martyr ourselves, who is it that we demonize? It honestly, again, doesn't serve anyone, but it allows for genuine, meaningful, authentic relationships because we can actually come together as, as whole, honored selves and then honor the union that we create. So it's the win-win. It is, it is the compassion that we're all desperately searching for, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're so right about the way we're set up because all of the things in my language, all of the things you're talking about, about the good children, the good babies, all of that is kind of um, in some way trauma-based because if a baby is just left and they are not tended to, that's kind of the outcome that they stop crying, basically. And so there's nothing around the wholeness or the messiness of actually humans in our society. I mean, I think in the, the underpinning of capitalism is that we self-abandon and that we teach our children to self-abandon, actually, to be pleasing and to just sort of suck up all this hard work. And I know it's, it's terrible the way the, that attendance stuff about, um, you know, you're rewarded for good attendance because there's no kind of honoring of, you know, if you've got an autoimmune condition as a child or if you're recovering from something. Bereaved children. Or children that are just not cut out for the rigidity of the demands of the school day. I'm going to say it, I think it's inhumane. I agree with you. Yes, I agree with you. I think they start too young and it's way too long, the days. That's kind of one of the things that I'm passionate about, about trying to shift that for children. And, but again, I think that's about capitalism because they in some way want to put us to work so the children are sent off. How can educators cope with what they've got in front of them. You know, they've got 30 bodies to try and it's like crowd control and then to try and educate and empower on top of that. The fact is our children are being forced to to numb themselves to their inner impulses so that they can pay attention and do what's required of them. But, you know, this is this is not our educators' fault. And even the school's rewarding remuneration, it's the schools are embedded in a system where their funding is dependent on them ticking the bloody boxes. So it's, it's, a, it's a deeply frustrating situation and it really requires some serious overhaul, doesn't it? Yes, it really does. And I think actually what you're talking about, for many of us actually advocating within the school system or against the school system or doing something that works for our family is very much about like how we grow ourselves up in motherhood is what you said about, um, advocating for our children, because I think that's a really a, a kind of a common theme for, for quite a lot of us. And that thing that you said about numbing our impulses, and you also said something about crowd control. One of the things that I'm trying to do here is break down shame. But I think the school system have no option but to use shame in order to control those 30 little bodies, because shame is very effective at shutting us down and controlling us. And when you have, you know, 30 children, like, I can't imagine trying to sort of teach and learn in that way. Of course, you need to sort of shut them down in some way. Otherwise, it's not going to work. So the system is really stacked against us, I think. It is indeed. It's indeed. Cast, you know, I, if I can share a little anecdote, 
and this is kind of like part of my journey of, of learning to to advocate for myself. I can remember when I was, gosh, in my 30s, I, I went to the hairdresser. She was colouring my hair and using, I had foils to highlight my hair and she used a hairdryer to speed the process up. She held the hairdryer too close to my head. The foil got incredibly hot and there's me going, oh, that's a bit uncomfortable and then go, oh my God, my head's getting burnt, right? I spent the rest of that uh, time in, in the hairdresser's church thinking, that really hurts. That really hurts. I wonder what kind of damage is. But she's styling my hair and I'm not saying anything because I didn't want to embarrass her. I didn't want to hurt her feelings, right? When I got home, I realized I had an open wound and I actually lost a patch of hair. And I thought to myself, oh my God, what have I done? My desire to protect her feelings was so great that I allowed a wound like of that magnitude to happen to me. And then I thought, hang on, but if she doesn't realize the damage she's caused, she might do that again. And my motivator was, I've got to protect other people because it's not all right to deny her of that learning opportunity. I st- it still wasn't enough for me in my own right to go, I need to let her know. I mean, that's how deep this stuff runs. And I think for anyone who really values compassion, kindness, gentleness, tenderness, very, very difficult for us to speak up. But I think we're going to get to that critical point of incurring a hairdressing injury or our children, you know, running into trouble for us to be able to go, actually, at what cost do we not? Okay. So if anyone has a tough time with this, be gentle with yourself, but it is a skill that we can all learn. And if it wasn't modeled for us growing up, it is certainly something that we can we can educate ourselves on. And I always use this analogy of many of us, what you just described, that we are facing outwards. We're so outward facing and we we have this kind of transaction of you need to be okay so I can be okay. So I'm going to do everything in my power to kind of please you and then you'll reflect back to me that I'm okay. And we just have to turn our things this way like our kind of our radar to ourselves that we can check, am I okay? Yes. Because it's, it's painful listening to your, like your poor head. And I could tell you lots of stories like that too. So it's a beautiful thing to not want to do harm. But sometimes we do have to deliver negative feedback. We've, we've got to shape behavior. Otherwise, we do greater harm. Exactly. And that thing about charity begins at home. We are our home. We have to tend to and nourish and cherish ourselves and not in a selfish way because I think, again, going back to that society message, there's so much thing about if you focus on yourself, you're being selfish and it's absolutely the opposite of that, like recovering from, in my language, codependency. So for recovering from that idea of you matter more than me and I need to please you to be, be me okay. Um, the core of that is checking in on ourselves first Totally. There's, I think there's a really useful reframe in there. So we tend to think that the opposite of selflessness is selfish. And I want to offer up a reframe. I would suggest that the opposite of selfless is boundaried. It's self-honoring. Now, there's nothing laid in there. There's nothing wrong with that. The fact is we can be kind, loving, generous human beings without denying ourselves, without running ourselves ragged. 
depleting ourselves. And how did you make some of that journey in motherhood, that journey from, um, because I can hear how important it is to do no harm. How did you make that journey from the selfless place to being more boundaried? What really helped you with that? Making a whole heap of mistakes and realizing if I continue to do that, yes, this is the cost. And actually, what are the nuts and bolts that need to change here? So I need to be clear on what my children need to feel safe and healthy in this environment or in this relationship. I need to actually give voice to that because these things can be super loud in our heads. It can be loud in our kids' heads. But until it's vocalized, we can't expect anyone to read our minds. And then where that boundary is transgressed, it's learning how to very compassionately, respectfully say, when this happens, this is the result. Please, can you do this? And it's a request, you know, boundaries are, it's a negotiation, isn't it? It's not always, you can't make it an ultimatum or a demand. There's a conversation that needs to be had. We've got to get brazen enough to have that conversation. And it comes for clar- from clarity on our values, understanding that our job is to protect our children and also to prepare them for life. And this involves also helping them advocate for themselves. So if I want my kids to advocate for themselves, they've got to see me do it. And that includes not just advocating for them, but advocating for me as a human being. How else will they understand that everyone has needs, that everyone needs to get a look in? Yeah. So, but a lot of that was, I, I want to say hands up, I made a whole heap of mistakes and learned on the hoof. And none of this is gurus at the top of the mountain pulling everyone else up. It is all, we are all climbing our own mountains and hopefully we can learn and grow together. Do you have any tales of mountain climbing that you want to tell us? Um, I, I think it's just, it, it is so challenging in motherhood where quite often we have different chaos thresholds. We've got different values. You know, I think people are tolerant of different things, but it just comes down to being crystal clear with this behavior is okay. This action is okay. This isn't okay. And so there's been a whole heap of that. In playgrounds, on play dates, feeding back to the school. It's challenging, isn't it? Yeah, it's very challenging. And as part of that is making sure that I am resourced so that I can have those conversations with a clear head. Yeah, exactly. And Susie, um, tell me about, so we talked a bit about how you had this expectation of how you'd be, that it would be so kind of, because you were such a caregiver, it would be sort of so natural and everything. Essentially, that comes with a lot of really high expectation. That, that somehow I'm just going to ace this role. Meanwhile, this is a role that's the most intense role we've ever had. It's all the time, you know, 24-7. We have no training. And we also have a whole audience looking on, kind of um, giving us free advice. Um, how did you kind of um, soften those expectations and I guess let go of the perfectionism in some way? What helped you with that? Okay, self-compassion helps all the time. I think that is the secret source. Uh, and I just want to, I want to say so, something out loud because there might be one person that just goes, oh, okay, I feel, I feel seen. Um, I can remember when it came time to wanting to add to our family, I can remember thinking, I really want to have another child, but I don't want to have another baby. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I think if we just had more open conversation at that time, I mean, my son's nearly nine now, and I think we are having far more vulnerable, open conversations, and thank goodness. I wasn't hearing a lot of that messaging back then. 
right? I was still getting a lot of enjoy every minute, right? (laughs) It is okay to struggle with raising a baby. It's okay to struggle with raising a teen. It's okay to struggle with various points of motherhood. The fact is, I think we've all got our unique skill set and our own strengths and some of us are are so well-placed to cope with the chaos of of tending to a newborn. Others are more wired for, for dealing with supporting kids through secondary school, through university, whatever it is. But it's like we're all going to cop it in the neck at some point and we'll all have other moments where we're like, ah, this is what I'm good at. Awesome. I found it, right? But it's just passion through it all is is so necessary. I think I learned pretty hard and fast that I just, I couldn't take one more blow. Life was so tough. I had to get on my own side. Yeah. If I added to my burden with shitty self-talk, I was going to fall over and not get back up. Yeah. So I had to learn how to get on my own side. And that is coaxing, gentle, encouraging inner dialogue. And I promise you, even if that feels really hard, it is a skill that you learn with persistence. And it's also unpicking this notion of I must be tough on myself to garner better performance. That's more rubbish, total rubbish. Yeah, it's total bullshit. Now, what research actually shows is that self-forgiveness and self-compassion facilitate better performance. They help help us to delay gratification. So it was rewriting that script of be punitive to perform better. No, be gentle and then you'll you'll eke the best out of yourself. Exactly, and I think that... um you're right, you know, that, that well, firstly, the thing about um, wanting to have another child but not wanting to have another baby because, I mean, even the young child stage, it's it's really, really intense and so hard and so triggering in so many ways. And building enough capacity to get, actually get through that, sometimes it's a real project. And I, I used to want to have four children. Um, and then Me too. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah. I was like, a lucky number. Big family. Awesome. Yeah, this will be fun. Two is plenty. Two is enough. And I often think that if like, I got given twins by the universe, maybe because it was just so hard that I could only maybe do it once. But yeah, I love what you said about that because I think it's really important for people to hear that you can, like in any decisions, particularly related to stuff on parenting, you can only be 51% kind of in the actual direction of the decision. And there's 49% thinking, I'm not sure if I can do this, but you kind of go ahead and do it. And I think that listening to you talk about being on your own side, because I think much of, particularly if we have a background where we didn't get our need met in childhood or need help any childhood trauma, we can be prone to depression and anxiety anyway. So we have to learn to like focus on the good and cultivate the good and cultivate joy, because otherwise we can just be feeling like slat and then shitty self-talk like all of the time. And I think that from what I see of your feed, you are really good at kind self-talk well this is what I make up but good at that kind self-talk and just consistently doing those actions because like each day we have that choice how do you kind of help yourself get over that hump to make that choice it is a self-commitment these are my boundaries with myself and I started on this path I'd say in my late teens early 20s it's something that I learned in my figure skating career that told them indeed I used I I was a solo skater, so I did it on my own. Wow. No one was strong enough to lift me. <laughs> I threw myself around. 
But um, I think most people who knew me from my figure skating days knew me as a terrible perfectionist. And like if if I did anything that was subpar, I wanted everyone to know that I was appalled. That was disgusting. And I tell you what, that was a fantastic roadblock to achieving. And I had um, I, I sustained a, a really significant knee injury where I was told either quit or have surgery or you could keep skating and not do any tricks for a few months. And what I learned, I, I was doing all these beautiful edge works. I couldn't jump or spin. All I could do was just the in-between bits. And that stuff is actually quite difficult. And it brought me back to this place of, I'm just going to express myself. You know, it's not about landing that trick where everyone knows whether you've done it well or not. And I learned there, oh my goodness, actually, when I speak to myself with respect, I'm actually getting a better result here. And months later, when I was able to jump again, I tell you what, I have never performed as well as I had because I was, I was literally coaching myself with the dialogue that, you know, a 60 year old coach would. It, it was amazing. And that's where I, I learned that the punitive stuff doesn't serve us. Okay. So I learned that hard and fast. And then that experience of energetic bankruptcy really hammered home that denying yourself achieves nothing. This is a commitment to self. And at what cost do I not do it? And for people that feel like, feel worthy of it, I won't do it until I feel worthy. I think, fuck it. Do it even if you don't feel deserving. Because actually the feelings of worth come from that tender action. Just start. Just start. And self-talk is most definitely a skill that we can cultivate. So start and, and, and when, when you fuck up, right? Have a little giggle. This is where sense of humor is essential. It's a non-negotiable. I will still say the most ridiculous things. I will still have huge, overblown, worried thoughts. Yeah, but I'll say to myself, oh, wow, look at that one. That was a doozy. I'll have a little giggle. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a prophecy. It doesn't have to be, I don't have to make it fact. It's not my identity. It's just a passing state. Exactly. And I absolutely love what you said about there was something that you said about um, not making something your identity and that it's not a prophecy. Because I think for so many of us, this anxiety comes and then it becomes the truth. And it's not the truth because it's all imagined. But what you said about the kind self-talk when you were a figure skater, you, that, that coaching yourself so lovingly, that's such a gentle, tender story. And for, for, for the listeners here, like, if we can have our own kind, loving coach through motherhood and through our parenting journey, it immeasurably changes. You've just given me goosebumps. Yeah. Yeah. For anyone that struggles with that, you know, I think there's this real tendency. We feel like I must stamp out this voice, this shitty inner dialogue, this imposter or this inner critic. I've got to get rid of it. We don't. We actually don't. All we need to do is just pass the microphone to that inner elder, the inner cheerleader, whatever it is that you want to call it. The fact is we, we have all of these voices available to us. It's just where do we place our attention? Who do we amplify? Okay, and I think it just it removes so much energy and effort. You don't need to get rid. Yeah, you're so right. And I think that in, when, when I work on this with clients, I talk about how we need to have our adults in place to parent the inner critic because the inner critic is such a wounded part of us. You know, such a part from, from a young place when we received these messages from whoever was, we were, were around growing up. And what you said about self-responsibility and, um, how 
even if we don't feel worthy, taking those self-esteeming actions builds our self-esteem. I think that's such an important reminder. And the self-responsibility is only, I kind of want to make this point to some of the listeners, that when some of us land up parenting ourselves from our inner child, so we kind of collapse into this place of, oh, I'm not worthy, or I'm too tired, or I'm, I'm going to parent myself instead by eating a chocolate cake today instead of going for a run or a walk or something. And we have to cultivate enough adult to say, okay, sweetie, I know that eating the chocolate cake is going to make you feel a bit crap. And I'm saying this to myself because this is sometimes some of the parenting I have to do to me. Not the whole chocolate cake, but, you know, chocolate cake. And to say, let's get ourselves out and move our body. And that will feel so much better. But it also takes time to cultivate that adult because that self-commitment that you're talking about is, is really sophisticated to have that commitment. It is. But I think if we tend to look at what would we say to people that are dear to us, right? The fact is we can find that voice there. So it's internalizing that or it's imagining or it's thinking back to maybe there was that elder figure in our lives. It's a grandparent. What would they say? Even if they're not present now, it is something that we can tap into. Even if it's not been you know, a lived experience. Yeah, and that's why, you know, th- these these voices that thankfully we are now, we can access through social media, we can internalize some of those scripts as well. It's it's having a whole new narrative, isn't it? Yes. It's such a powerful new narrative and sort of, I think that learning about that we do much better when we nourish ourselves applies so much to our children as well. It turns that kind of narrative, that kind of old behaviorist narrative about punish bad behavior and reward good behavior. Actually, we need to be nourishing all the time, and then our children just flourish. I think that's a really good point, actually, Kath. I've recently just had a whole influx of requests from mums saying, I'm really worried about this thought pattern. Um, I'm, I'm so an- annoyed with myself for having this particular train of thought. And actually, where we've arrived time and time again is the thought itself is not the source of the problem. The problem is actually depletion. You know, the fact is they're getting so little sleep, so little rest, they're not feeding their brains, they're dehydrated, they're not moving their bodies. No one has access to clarity of mind in that state of depletion. But instead of saying to ourselves, I've got to think my way out of this, I've got to think better, I must develop a new cognitive strategy, some kind of coping tool, can we sustain ourselves with nourishing practices? And as if by magic, our thinking bounces back to something more constructive without that layer of self-judgment. And so many, like all Deb Dana's work and lots of other somatic nervous system teachers talk about how our story follows our nervous system state. So if we shift our nervous system, our thoughts become so much more, like actually I just sat up there as I noticed, we become so much more hopeful, so much more positive, so much more um, uh, like flexible in our thinking, open, yeah, malleable, responsive, all of those things. That's what we want to be as moms, isn't it? Present. Yeah. Available. How do you resource yourself when you have your kids around you a lot? So i.e. like at a time of the school holidays, how do you kind of carve out um, space for you to nourish yourself? It's an excellent question, Kath. What I am learning time and time again is it is a work in progress because the needs of my children are changing the availability of my time is evolving, how much energy I have is changing. My self-care practices in term time look vastly different to how I take care of myself in half term in summer holidays, Christmas holidays. 
Yeah. In term time, I go for lovely, long, solo, spacious walks or jogs. I love that form of self-expression. I can't do that with two kids in tow. We will still get out and enjoy some nature therapy, but in that, I'm not walking at my pace anymore. I'm also trying to like get down from that tree that we've been up that tree for long enough now. Can we move on? Right. It's still gorgeous, but it's different. So in holidays, it becomes family self-care. So it's just making sure that there's an opportunity for creative outlets, time in nature, connection, rest, uh, movement. Yeah. There's all of that. But in terms of like what makes my heart sing, I will try and do some form of yoga every day. Now that I'm going to be honest, that does involve yoga, rolling out a yoga mat, but it will probably involve two kids playing Lego around me <laughs> while I'm doing it or someone on a PS4 and, you know, scoring FIFA goals and running around and jumping on the yoga mat with me. So it's right. It's whatever we can do. And sometimes it's going to be having earlier nights. Or later nights because it's so bloody hot and we can't sleep. What's the point going to bed? So let's do things differently and let's have a collective shavasana for 30 minutes at 2 o'clock. Yeah, it's about being flexible. It's hard, isn't it? It is hard, but I often think if I had to define one one kind of quality of what it is to grow ourselves up, it's to become flexible in all our responses because that choice shows we have enough capacity and, and sort of a resource and, and sort of enough flexibility in our nervous system to choose how we respond. Yeah, that speaks to me, Kath. Absolutely. We need behavioral flexibility and we also need psychological flexibility. Yeah, spot on. And Susie, I'm just conscious of our time and I don't want to take too much of your time. Are there anything else that you'd like to say about um, how you've grown yourself up? So I think the biggest lessons are around debunking that myth of selflessness. Yeah, that, that feels biggest. And actually learning the nuts and bolts of how to honor myself actually knowing myself as a human being and that involves owning an awareness of my needs, learning how to meet them and learning how to develop healthy boundaries with myself and healthy boundaries with other people. Really at the heart of all of that, the biggest lesson is it, it's about self-compassion. It's about tenderness. I think tenderness is, is so underrated but the most beautiful things come from being gentle and tender with ourselves and our loved ones. I love that. And I think what you said about, I love all the things you've just said, but what I also get a lot from you is your acceptance of process. Um, because often as perfectionists, I'm a recovering perfectionist and I know lots of my listeners are, that there's that thing about, right, and I've learned there's this new thing I can do. Now, why the hell can't I do it when I've only practiced it like once? And we kind of loop back into that um, beating ourselves up. And I really appreciate the, what you've talked about, how it is a practice and you have to continuously recommit to yourself and do the things that make you feel good. And um, if you're in a shitty bad mood in the evening to go, oh, yeah, maybe I needed my like big walk this morning. I must recommit to that tomorrow morning to really kind of notice that. And I so appreciate your kind of realness around that. I love that, Kath. You know, this is it. It's life is messy. Life is messy. So messy. It's okay to make mistakes. Yeah. And what I'm learning is it's permission to be human. Beyond that, it's permission to just be one human being. That is enough. Thank you for taking the time to be here. Thank you, Kath. Lots and lots of love. Such a pleasure. Thank you, darling. Thank you so much. 
You've been listening to Grow Yourself Up, hosted by Kath Cunahan. We'll be back next week with a new episode supporting you to better understand and tend to yourself for more heart-centered, connected, authentic, and resilient living. Thank you.